The truth is our nation is heading, it's spiraling, isn't it, out of control. It's on a very, very slippery slope. And uh, now it is officially in Canadian law that God and his word are nothing more than myth. Welcome to 2022. The preamble to the Canadian Criminal Code, Bill C-4, that passed without argument. (laughs) Unbelievable. How did this happen? Listen to what the preamble said about it. Whereas, this is about conversion therapy. So therefore, if someone comes to you and is seeking to, to help with sexual urges that are against biblical principles, that if anyone helps them to convert back to a heteronormal, heterosexual lifestyle, they are now breaking the law. And the preamble to this law says, whereas one of the assumptions is that conversion therapy causes harm to society because, among other things, it is based on and propagates, listen to these words, myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender, gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth, otherwise known as biological reality, the, the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. It's all based on myths and stereotypes. Who supplied us with such myths and stereotypes? Isn't it the God who made the world with his word? Our government and culture remind me, remind us all, it reminds me of a game uh, that we used to play as kids in public school. You're not allowed to play it anymore. It's illegal now. In fact, it was actually illegal when I was in public school too, but we used to play it, especially when there were a lot of snow because it's very flat around here. And, uh, and the, the snow plows would come and they'd pile up the snow into big giant mountains, right? Hills of snow. And as boys, we used to love getting on those hills of snow and playing a game. You know what the game is. King of the hill, right? We love that game. And we played it either until we got caught or we got hurt. One of the two. And you know how it works. One of the guys is up at the top and he's the king of the hill. And everyone else is coming up all sides to try and topple him and become the king themselves on the hill. And that is where our nation, and in fact, the world right now seem to be, we are in a massive game of king of the hill right now on a global scale. Our culture is desperately trying to remove God from being king of the hill. And as Christians, you and I, are the king's representatives in the world. So guess what? They can't attack God. They can't reach him. So instead, they attack his representatives indirectly. They're attacking God through us. Do you feel surrounded by enemies? Welcome to 2022. This is where we're heading. And even other professing Christians, I'm still trying to wrap my head around professing Christian politicians who did not even speak up about the idea that your sex, your gender at birth assigned to you by Almighty God is not a myth and is not a stereotype. Professing Christians are backing away from the conflict, 
trying to appease a society of idol worshipers. We just need to be nice. Just need to get along. Well, just like anything else, I was talking to a, a Christian brother this morning about this. There's no conflict in history that has not already been done at some point. Just like any other issue, circumstance in history, we are not alone in this. Our text this morning in Psalm 2, where we're heading, our text this morning was written by someone who he was a representative of the king in this world, and he always found himself surrounded by people who wanted to destroy him. Of course, we know him as David. The psalm itself does not say that David wrote it, but we find out in the New Testament that David wrote it. It's very clear that David wrote it. And before we begin to read it, we're going to pray together, and then we're going to read it, and we're going to find, uh, read parts of it and study it together. And as we do, we're going to find out that Jesus is the true and established king of the hill. And because of that, he provides us with confidence and with assurance and with passion. And that's how we want to come out of Psalm 2, with passion to go into the world and declare the mercy of God. So let's pray together as we enter the, the psalm this morning. Father, we just ask you to speak through this text. Use your words, Lord, your words that the world is calling a myth and a stereotype right now, just a fable, a fairy tale. Lord, this is your word and it contains infinite power. Use it this morning to transform our lives and our hearts, to encourage us, to challenge us, possibly, Lord, if there are unconverted in this room, to convert us this morning, to bring us to yourself, to bring us closer in worship, and then fill us with your power to move out in this world as witnesses of the King of the Hill, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first thing we're gonna find out about Psalm 2 in the first six verses is that Jesus, as King of, the King, uh, King of Kings, gives us confidence against our enemies. That's what we're gonna find first. So let's dig in. Psalm 2, verse one, David writes, "'Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I've, I'm a little acquainted because I have boys with YouTubers. Now, there's one YouTuber that my boys don't watch for good reason, but his name keeps coming up in the news, and so I keep seeing it. But this guy, Jake Paul, I mean... That takes a lot of confidence for a YouTuber to actually decide, I have so much money, I'm going to buy myself the best trainers, and I'm going to challenge some of the best fighters in the world to fight. That takes a lot of confidence, doesn't it? As we enter 2022 and we look around and go, okay, who is it that is against God? That's a lot of people. Well, we're going to notice that this morning, and, and David is looking at all of the enemies of God, and maybe a little bit overwhelmed. The Psalms always seem to start this way. They always seem to start from a horizontal perspective and then they start to move vertical as he gets his eyes on God. And that's where we start. And behind every song, there's a story. Some 
songs, the story is lamer than others, but there's generally a story behind most songs. Some stories, some songs actually become books and movies like the Bart Miller story of Behind I Can Only Imagine, right? Became a movie, became a book. Great book, by the way. Every idea seems to come from somewhere, some kind of circumstance, especially the best songs, they're connecting with us. They're relatable in one way or the other. Some of, some of the stories are a little bit crazy. Like, again, Deep Purple's song, Smoke on the Water. They actually had been at a rock concert, not themselves. I think they were just attending and the building caught on fire and it was in Switzerland. And so they all evacuated and they were up in their room, you know, looking out over the, the smoke and the fire. And it was all moving over. Is it Lake Geneva over there? And they saw the smoke in the water and decided, hmm, Great, great idea for a song. I don't know how. I don't know how, but apparently that's a good idea for a song. But every, every song, for some reason, has a story. Even hymns, I think, have some of the best stories. The story behind Amazing Grace just helps us understand it, helps us realize and recognize what was going on when John Newton wrote the words of Amazing Grace. He was a slave owner, a slave, sorry, a slave ship uh, trader, captain who uh, was sailing across the ocean taking slaves and he was converted. He found Christ or Christ found him. And uh, he comes to Christ. He becomes a Christian minister, a Christian pastor, and eventually spends the rest of his life fighting against the slave trade and fighting for abolition. And of course, he writes the song, Amazing Grace, right? I once was lost, but now I'm fine. Found, was blind, but now I see. He's writing about his own experience and it's relatable to us. We can, we can understand that and we can appreciate it. Or it is well with my soul when Horatio Spafford was sailing across the Atlantic Ocean right over the spot where his wife and four daughters had gone down into the water and had died. And he penned the words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well, it is well with my soul. And knowing that story helps us with the words. Knowing the story behind Psalm 2 helps us with the words. David was constantly surrounded by enemies everywhere he looked. Whether it was a lion and a bear, whether it was Goliath in the valley, the Philistine, whether it was Saul, the renegade king, who knew that God had anointed another to be king and chased David down for the rest of his life. Or the Philistines, Goliath's people, who when they found out that David had been anointed king, all the Philistines went up to search for David. Why? Not to congratulate him, but to kill him. And everywhere he looked, there were the Moabites, there were the Ammonites, they were everywhere. There was one point in 2 Samuel 7 where the narrator actually tells us there was a time when the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the Syrians. They were all around him, everywhere he looked. In fact, God strategically put his people, Israel, on a plot of land in the ancient, the ancient world, the ancient Near East, right at the center of all these surrounding pagan, idol-worshiping nations. They were everywhere. And right in the center is this little pocket of land where the crossroads of the world had to come through Israel to get anywhere in the world. And as they come through, they hear about Yahweh, 
the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods, the one who created everything. He didn't come out of chaos. He came out of order. He spoke with his words and the world was made. And all these surrounding nations, they want to destroy, not just Israel, they want to destroy Israel's God. And that's where David finds himself. Nobody likes the king of the hill. Everyone wants to take him down. Look at what Psalm 2 says. Who are the enemies? Why do the nations, plural, rage, and the peoples, plural, plot in vain? The kings, plural, of the earth set themselves, and the rulers, plural, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. It's the many. It's the mighty. Look around you. Who's pushing God out of our nation? It's not the fringe. It's the popular. It's the many. It's the mighty. It's the government, the media, social media, big corporations, movie stars, celebrities, philosophers, professors, doctors, scientists, economists. You still have confidence? Some of you are having panic attacks. I've heard it. When you see how many there are, some of you have dropped social media and watching any kind of media altogether. You just can't take it. I, I don't blame you. How they're speaking, I want you to notice David describes why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The raging is the idea of being restless, agitated. Have you noticed this? It's just this restlessness, this agitation in our society. They, they're never quite satisfied. If they get one, one sense of freedom or one victory, and that's not enough. We have to push the limits and push the limits and push the limits. It's, it's a slippery slope, and they're plotting. Actually, the word for plot, the Hebrew word behind the word for plot was used in the first Psalm to describe meditating on God's law. The idea is muttering or speaking over and over again to oneself, muttering, mumbling maybe. The idea is you're, you're moaning, you're plotting. I kind of, I think of Gollum, right? Down in the cave, eating cold fish with his precious. And he's always speaking of his precious, right? Sorry, that's a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. I shouldn't have done that. But you get the idea. The psalmist is describing someone who's plotting over and over again. Then they're taking counsel. They're conspiring with each other. Okay, well, how are we going to do this? And they're coming up with some strategy. Does Great Reset ring a bell at all? Does this sound like anything going on right now? It's the picture, really, of people who are out of their minds with fear and rage. Not just how they're saying it, but what they're saying. Verse three, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away. Yes, they're looking at God's good law, right law, that if people followed his law, it would be a wonderful society. In, in, in Psalm 1, he talks about blessed is the man who his delight is in the law of the Lord. He loves it. He meditates on it. He thinks about it because it makes him happy and joyful. And now in Psalm 2, we have people who are looking at God's law and saying, 
these are cords. This is bondage. We need to cast it aside. When the people see evil as freedom, they will see righteousness as bondage. And that's where we're at. That defines our culture. When people see evil as freedom and we want to defund law and order, we will also see righteousness as bondage. And Jesus said very clearly in John 3, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men or people loved darkness rather than light. Tell me the Bible isn't a living book, that it's outdated. It's describing us. It's exactly where we're at. But God has the final say. And this is where our confidence comes from. It doesn't come from having millions of dollars as a YouTuber and spending them on the best trainers. It comes from the living God. Verse four, he who sits in the heavens above it all, he laughs. And the Lord holds them in derision. What's that word derision mean? What does it mean to deride someone? It's the idea of mocking to humiliate. It's the idea of laughing at someone, the sense of making them feel ashamed of themselves. Are you serious? Did you just say that? Really? You said that? Those words came out of your mouth? That kind of language is meant to make us feel ashamed of what we've done or what we've said. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, and if you forget everything else, remember this. God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Doesn't matter how many they are. Doesn't matter how mighty they are. God has set his king on the hill. God laughs at them. He mocks them. In the New Testament, Paul describes the cross of Jesus where he says, God disarmed, Colossians 2, verse 15, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. At the cross, he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Not only would he topple them, this is great. Not only would God topple them, but he would use their own actions to do it. It's kind of like when someone's going to push you and you step out of the way and they stumble and fall, right? He's going to use their own actions to do it. It's like the mouthy little dude picking a fight with a UFC champion out on the street. He's going to get laughed at. And if he persists, he's going to get the beating of his life. Yeah, we're not supposed to talk about the wrath of God, are we? Society doesn't like it. We're supposed to present a gentle God who just puts up with nonsense indefinitely. Not a God who laughs and mocks at our puny efforts to overthrow him. But what is our culture afraid of ultimately? What are they afraid of? Why on earth do they want to change biology? Because they don't want a king telling us who we are. They're afraid of a king. God says, I have set him. You know, that Hebrew word set is the idea of pouring, like pouring concrete, pouring into a mold to make a statue, right? I've set him like a rock on a foundation. I've set him on a hill. I don't think I'd want to play the game King of the Hill with a statue. I'm pretty sure I know who would lose. But notice that, notice what else he says. He says, I've set him on Zion, What's Zion? Zion is just packed with meaning, the history of it. 
You know, when Joshua and the people entered the land of Canaan, they were supposed to destroy all the peoples in that land, remove them, and set up the new kingdom of God, Israel, in that land. There was one people that stayed there for another 400 years that no one could seem to overthrow. They were the Jebusites, and they lived in a little place called what we know as Jerusalem. And it was a stronghold. It was a fortress. No one could seem to penetrate it. So David comes along, and in 2 Samuel 5, we read about how the king and his men, they went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. 400 years have come and gone. They've been in this land. They've been putting up with the Jebusites. The king finally says, enough with this. We're going up there. We're going to overthrow it. The Jebusites said to David, you're not coming in here. The blind and the lame are going to defend this place and ward you off. You're not coming in. That's confidence. That's real confidence. I mean, after you've been sitting there for 400 years, you'd think, yeah, we'd be a little confident. Nobody's coming in. This place is impenetrable. Nobody's coming in here. David took the stronghold of Zion and he set up a city and he called it the city of David. David can't come in here, but God can. And God did. And he set his king, King David at the time, King Jesus later on, but he set his king on Zion. And the hill, Mount Zion, was where the temple was placed, Mount, the, the Temple Mount, it's known as. And it is there that it said that the king, the true king, God, dwells on Mount Zion. That's what David is referring to. So as we come out of Christmas and we're entering into 2022, we can take confidence that Jesus Christ is set set as king of the hill. He's not moving. That's where he's at. And Psalm 9 says, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. Well, that's first. We're going to keep moving into Psalm 2, and we're going to find out next that Jesus, the king of kings, gives us assurance of ultimate victory. Jesus, king of kings, gives us assurance because after all, we could have confidence. Yes, God God is, is fit for this battle. He can win. We know that. But it doesn't look like he's winning. We're looking around and we're saying, we're surrounded by people who are opposing us. We kind of look small in number. And we hear it every once in a while. You know, you guys are in the minority, eh? What you guys think? A little crazy. Because everybody else thinks something else. So how do we have assurance? It's one thing to have confidence. Yes, God is in this fight. He set his king. This is wonderful. How do we have assurance as we move through daily life, enduring, enduring, enduring? How do we have any assurance that we're going to win this battle? Well, look at Psalm 2, verse 7. David continues and he says, I will tell you of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You know, when we lack assurance that it's going to work out in the end, where do we go? Where did David go? He says, I will tell of the decree. He went to the word. We go to the word of God. We tell of his decrees. It's interesting that this decree that David is talking about was probably a coronation decree. 
something that was said when a king in Israel was crowned king, they would repeat this. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In pagan worlds as well, in the ancient world, they often year by year would have coronation ceremonies or reenactments of the coronation. I don't know if the Hebrews did this as well or not. They may have. They may have done something very similar where they enacted this every year, the crowning of the king, the crowning of the king. And they would declare this decree over and over to remind themselves of just why their king is assured of victory. Now, in what way was the king of Israel God's son? You see, in the Psalms in the Old Testament, there is an immediate reality to these Psalms, but there's also a a promise to them, right? Something that's not completely fulfilled just yet. So how was the king of Israel, let's say David or David's son, Solomon, and so on, and Rehoboam, and down the line, how were these kings God's son? Again, pagan nations would say, yeah, our king is God's son, but the idea was their deity. David didn't believe he was the son of God. He didn't believe he was a son, in other words, divine of God. He didn't believe that. How was it? Well, the idea behind it is the idea of a covenant. In 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David in his kingship. And one of the things he told him, he said, about his own son, Solomon. He said, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. You see, the king, the human king, was a representative of the divine king, Yahweh or God. It was given in that context. The Israelite kings were sons by covenant, not nature, by covenant. They weren't naturally born of God, but they were spiritually linked to God by covenant. I will be a father to him and he shall be my son. But there's a long line of David's monarchy to prove that it was insufficient to save humanity. They all failed, even David. Adultery, murder, cover-up, dysfunctional family, all of it dogged him for the rest of his life after he committed adultery at Bathsheba. It was all there. And so when we move into the New Testament, we find out that the apostles saw someone else in Psalm 2. They saw someone else. I think you know who it is. In fact, let me tell you a story. There was a time when the apostles looked like they were losing. And they, Jesus had died. He had risen again from the dead. And he had gone back to heaven. And he had told them, I'm going to make you messengers. You're going to go out and you're going to tell people about me. You're going to tell people that I've risen from the dead. Well, they started to do that and it didn't go well. And they got called in in front of the authorities and the authorities threatened them, threw them in prison, threatened them and said, don't you dare speak in his name. Don't you dare say that he's a king. And if you do, well, this is what we're gonna do to you. They had all kinds of threats to give against him. And and these apostles, they left and they went back to the other church church members, the early church. And uh, and they said to them, you know what? It's over, we're all, we lose, we're all gonna die. Is that what they said? No, they didn't. What they did was they looked, away from themselves, they looked to God and they began to pray. And as they prayed, they spoke with assurance. They reminded themselves of where their assurance came from. And one of the things they did was they quoted Psalm 2. And in it, they said this, for truly, 
Okay, remember the Gentiles raging, the people's plotting in vain, the kings of the earth setting themselves, the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they said, for truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate. Wait, that's a king and a ruler. Okay, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. In other words, the nations and the peoples. Check the boxes off. Psalm 2 has been fulfilled. And do whatever, to do whatever, not what they wanted to do, not what they conspired to do, but these apostles, as they're praying, they're saying to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What gave them boldness? What gave them assurance? Why did they know they were going to win this battle? It wasn't just that Jesus Christ died, but that he rose again from the dead. And as they're looking back now at the cross and they're seeing all the humiliation that Jesus went through and all the things that people conspired to do against them, they're saying, they didn't do what they wanted to do. They actually did what you said they were going to do. They actually did what you planned for them to do. In other words, even when they're doing evil, they're just fulfilling your purposes. So all, all along the way, you're winning, you're winning, you're winning. And Jesus is the anointed one. He's the one set on Zion now. David's out of the picture. We're not looking at King David. He failed. Jesus wins. Jesus is the one who's risen from the dead. And over and over again, the New Testament quotes Psalm 2 and reminds us he is the unique divine son of God. He is a son because he is divine. He is the son because he is God who has come in the flesh. And we're coming out of Christmas remembering not just his birth, but the fact that he died and that he rose again. And the Hebrew writer tells us, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today, I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. No, he didn't say it to an angel. He didn't say it to a human being. He said it to his only son, the only person in existence to take this claim on himself. And Paul reminds us that the resurrection, he was preaching one day to the people in Antioch and Pisidia, and he's just reminding them again that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus was not just crowned, he wasn't just crowned because God said so, he was crowned in resurrection from the dead. Now, what are people gonna do to him? I mean, what's the worst threat they can give to you in this world? What's the worst threat you can have? I'm going to kill you, right? Well, what happens when killing someone is reversed and they're no longer dead? What are you going to do now? Well, that didn't work. He just got back up again. That's the biggest weapon I have. What am I going to do now? Hey, culture, there's one reality you will never erase. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He's alive. And he is our assurance that God wins. And from that, Psalm 2, God says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. They are all his. 
Jesus is king over them all. And now he calls us and he says, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. That's what we're told to do. That's the great commission. That's the mission plan of this church to fulfill the great commission and glorify God in doing so. In Acts 1, Jesus sent the apostles out. And again, Luke records just some slightly different words. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the world, the earth. Yeah, the ends of the earth are his possession, all of it. Confidence is the basis of our assurance and assurance is now the basis of our passion to advance the kingdom of God. And that's the third point. We're gonna read the rest of this Psalm and we're gonna see again, Jesus, King of Kings, gives us passion to declare the mercies of God. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And look at this last statement. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. David's no longer frightened and he's no longer depressed. No, in fact, now he's turning with confidence and with assurance to the surrounding nations and he's saying to them, O kings, you've been warned. Now be wise, rulers. Be wise with what you do with the fact that Jesus is king of the hill. We no longer have to be frightened or depressed. We can move out as God's messengers without backing down, without being embarrassed. Jesus Christ has died. He's risen again. And blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's our message. And we move out into our world knowing that God has claimed the nations for himself. And by way of the gospel, we will win. We have a message of resurrection. David, if he was here today, what would he say to our defiant nation from Psalm 2? Well, he would say, your secret plans, Trudeau, Ford, whoever, your secret plans are open to God who sees and knows all things. You don't think he knows what high school teachers are teaching their students right now? You don't think he knows what the professors are preaching in their classes in the universities? Of course he does. Open to God. You have no chance against the God who sits in the heavens. God is righteously angry with sin, but he is merciful to those who turn and repent. So be wise and take the warning you've been given before it's too late. Learn to fear God by recognizing his majesty. Serve the Lord with decisions you make for this nation. Surrender. That's what it means to kiss the sun. Again, it was just an ancient ritual. If you were coming to a king for protection, you would kiss his feet or you would kiss the ground in front of his feet. And what you were saying was, my life is yours. I can't do this myself. I need you to save me. I need you to protect me and you would kiss the ground in front of the king. In this case, it's God's son. Repent. Surrender to the true king who is set on Zion and find refuge and true joy in fearing and serving Jesus Christ. Maybe you think warning our nation is unpatriotic. 
How dare you speak ill of our nation or its leaders? After all, Romans 13. The Old Testament prophets were often accused of being traitors or enemies of the state for warning the people of coming national destruction. Warning our nation is the most patriotic thing that we can do. I want to take uh, just a couple of minutes to make this just a little more personal. So we're not just speaking to a nation this morning, are we? We're speaking to individuals. By the way, the king's anger is a refuge. Isn't that wonderful? I'm glad that God is angry with sin. And I'm glad he's going to judge it. He's going to destroy it. And he's going to destroy all sinners who are unrepentant because that's safety for those who take refuge in him. You don't want a passive God. Why would you want that? Who just lets injustice happen and never deals with it? No, his anger is a refuge. The king's enemies will fall under his wrath. The king's people will be sheltered under his loving strength. It's more personal, isn't it? Because all of us naturally want to be our own king, even religious people. If your attempt to get to heaven or to get close to God is by your own terms or by your own good works, then you're just being your own king. You've set yourself on your own hill. You've set yourself up to rule over your own life. I'm going to come on my terms. God says, you can't come by works. You can't come your own way. You can only come through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You made a mess. Jesus cleaned it up. You did the crime. Jesus did the time. That's the only way you're coming as soon as you admit that and turn to him in repentance and refuge, for refuge. That's the only way you're coming on his terms, not yours. But we naturally want to come on our own terms. And generally it takes quite a while for God to bring us down to a place where we no longer are our own king coming on our own terms. But that's exactly where we stand personally. And Psalm 2 can be far more personal, not just to the nations around, but to all the kings and queens in this room this morning who are trying to rule your own life. God wants to call you to repent, to turn from your sin, to turn from trying to break off the the bondage of righteousness. I want to do my own thing. I want to have my own fun. I want to enjoy my own life. No, to turn from all of that and to turn to Jesus Christ. Blessed are you when you take refuge in him. Blessed are all, verse 12, who take refuge in him. Isn't that wonderful? David said in Psalm 34, something very similar when he said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You'll only take refuge in him when you know you need him. So turn to him today. Because again, Psalm 34, none of those who take refuge in him will ever be condemned. That's the gospel. The king is set on his hill. He's a refuge. You know, I could imagine. I don't know if king of the hill is a team sport, is it? But I know who I'm picking. (laughs) I'm picking the biggest kid to be my team captain, right? I'm going to hide behind him. Because if I'm behind him, he's a refuge. Jesus Christ is set on his hill. He's our refuge today. We can move out of Christmas and move into 2022 with confidence, with assurance, and with passion to speak this message of hope to others.